0: Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. Very first episode uh, in my brand new studio. If you've been watching, following me on Instagram and social media, you would have uh, seen uh, this all coming together. Um, I'm very, very happy that my very first guest in the new studio and actually the new layout as well for the live chat and everything is uh, none other than Charles Gibb. He is the CEO of North Amer- Fever Tree North America. Um, and his story is insane. A veteran of the drinks in business for nearly three decades, um, you've been Australia, Europe, uh, the US, and I, I, I'm kind of going to dig into it a little bit more as we go forward because um, it seems like you're an entrepreneur trapped in a in a corporate in a corporate company. <laughs> so it, it seems like you've uh, taken over um, these these startups basically within these massive companies like Diageo, Moe Hennessy and stuff. And you you don't really go by the usual corporate mandates that you see in in any industry, uh, especially the spirits industry. You sort of like screw it, let's disrupt the crap out of everything. <laughs> I like that.
1: Um, yeah, I mean I, I, I got very lucky early on in my in my career when um I, I always say I joined United Distillers and I left Diageo without actually changing my contract, as it were. But I, um, they kind of took one look at me and said, you can go to Poland. And, and I started, you know, we started United Distillers in Poland um, back, you know, in the early 90s, just after the Berlin Wall had come down. So it was very much this this new sort of enlightenment in Poland and this extraordinary sort of opening up of the country. And And I just... Got this bug for kind of. I like being involved in dynamic, fast-moving, agile, entrepreneurial environments, and I almost sort of shy away from any all the kind of big corporate stuff. And 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 anytime there's an opportunity to do something that's uh, that's you know more entrepreneurial, more dynamic, and and certainly starting up companies. You know, I was very lucky to get involved in the startup in Hennessy, Australia, and 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 you know some of my greatest friends in in life. Indeed, my wife um, was involved in the start of about Hennessy Australia with me, um, along with, you know, people who are lifelong friends. And I think through those kind of, I don't know, through those formative periods, those, those strange times, um, you create different types of friendships. And I think life's all about the people that you meet and the experiences that you have. And, you know, I, I think you get that in a start-up environment. And I'm loving Fever Tree, you know, North America for the very same reasons. You know, we've got a team coast to coast and up into Canada, um, and you know, it's great. I I've met some fantastic new people, and um, already you can feel this very special bond between the people within the team because they all know that we're involved in doing something quite special and quite quite different.
0: And it it really is. uh, We're going to get. We'll we'll touch on Fever Tree now, but we'll get back to it. Fever Tree. It, it, as a company sort of set out to disrupt the the mixer market the the soda market before that like really it was just a lot of macro sort of rubbish on the on the market and uh, mixers have really changed the game like I now have locals and and regulars and consumers go I only use fever tree I only use their tonics or I only use their ginger beers and stuff like that um, how do you how do you sort of kick off something like uh, fever tree in North America where really you sort of pushing an uphill battle all the time well
1: um i'm not sure it's well it's certainly look it's not an uphill battle but it's certainly a battle um because it's not as if people don't want this and that's what would make it uphill um people are looking to make the best drinks that they possibly can and whether that's a bartender a mixologist or frankly you know your average person at home they want to make the best drink that they possibly can either for themselves to enjoy or for their guests be that at home or in the bar and so this growth of premium spirits where people were talking endlessly about you know the quality of the spirit and the way that the spirit was amazingly crafted you know It resonates so strongly with people. And then suddenly you found that, you know, I always say that the life's work of a distiller gets destroyed literally, um, you know, five seconds before people, you know, are about to have their drink. And why does it get destroyed? It gets destroyed because somebody injects it with a whole load of high fructose corn syrup and, and artificial ingredients and destroys this beautiful spirit. And ultimately, like anything in life, you know, a, a, you know, a meal is only as good as its worst ingredient. A drink is only as good as its worst ingredient. You know, you'd never put, you know, tomato ketchup on Wagyu beef, would, <laughs> would, you, would you? So why are you putting, you know, syrups and artificial ingredients into a beautifully crafted, delicious, amazing spirit? Um, and for us, it's just about telling that story. And when you when you say to people, if three quarters of your drink is the mixer, why are you not giving it at least equal importance? You just watch the penny dropping yeah. inside people's head. You watch the penny drop and they just they go, I hadn't thought of that. And I think that's the genius of F- Fevertree. It was something that people hadn't thought of. And yet it's so, frankly, blindingly obvious once you once you give it some thought. You go, <laughs> yep. And that's how I came into the business. I mean, right. I came into the business because Fevertree made Belvedere vodka taste. Great, you know, it helped me with my marketing. It made my drinks taste better.
0: And that's you know, that's that's all we were after. Well, it's a perfect segue. So I, I'm a bit of a comic book nerd. Um, I usually start off my interviews always some a bit of a hardcore comic book. What's your origin story? Like you, you're in the military. We talked off camera about my father was an ex military man himself. Um, what what sort of kicked you off to? Because it's a weird transition. Like we can talk about your military career, but how did you transition from that to the spirits business? Like what was what was the the aha moment? Were you always an entre- entrepreneurial kid? Um, and then you just need some structure because I know my father went to the military because it was either that or uh juvenile prison. Um,
1: <laughs> I don't think I was quite juvenile prison, but I probably were. <laughs> but I think it was, look, I, I there 's no doubt you know i loved uh, loved that military experience, loved the discipline it gave me i wasn 't patient enough to go to college i 'm probably one of the last generations that could afford not to go to college as 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 it were um, i should I, I certainly wouldn 't be recommending to my kids or anybody else not to go to college and get a secondary edu- education, but I was a you know young um, um, active Passionate, engaged young, young man. And I just wanted to get out there and attack the world. And the army basically brought me down to earth and allowed me to do that, but do it in a disciplined and, and, and structured manner. But equally after a time, and there's a weird thing in the army where you can grow very, very quickly when you're junior, and then you get to a certain ceiling and then they start capping you. And then you can like move one or two steps every five years and that just, the, the prospect of that frustrated me. So I was a, I was a captain at the age of 23, having joined the army, you know, just 18, nine, 19, I was young. And then they said, right, you're, you, you can be a major when you're, I don't know, 28. And you can be a lieutenant colonel when you're 35. And like, so I can do two more steps. And that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and... It, I always used to joke with people that, you know, as soon as the Berlin Wall came down, of course, you know, we defeated communism, so therefore it was a good time to leave. But I literally left at exactly at, at that time. And I always – the one thing I knew I wanted to do was I wanted to work in in something that was tangible. I couldn't work in insurance or I couldn't work in, in – so, it had to be tangible and I had to believe in it. And I love – you know, I love – the alcohol industry because it's fundamentally about people relaxing and people enjoying themselves and people having fun. You know, I can't get quite as excited about soap powder or, you know, (laughs) toothpaste or whatever. So it had to be tangible, but it had to also be something I could engage with. And what I love about this industry is that, you know, whether it's a bar, whether you're going to a golf club, whether you're going to a friend's house, Everybody loves to talk about alcohol. They love to talk about what they've got in their drinks cabinet. They love to talk about what they're going to make, you know, their special house cocktail. Um, you know, I was with some friends over the summer and we created our own new drink and we gave it a name. Um, of course, it was a fever tree-based drink. <laughs> but, you know, but we, you know, it, it's one of those things. It's part of the fabric of our lives and something that we all enjoy doing and, and you know, genuinely – um, you know, adds pleasure to people's leisure time, their relaxation time. And I think that's what's that's what's so u- un- unique about it. And therefore it was a, an industry that also, certainly when I joined it, never took itself, you know, it's a serious industry, but it didn't take itself too seriously. You know, it's about how you make it fun, how you make it enjoyable, how you make it engaging. Um, and I think those are the aspects that I sort of really gravitated to. to.
0: So where, where, what was your first uh, job out of the military with the, in the spirits business?
1: Um, so bizarrely, I went to a tobacco company for a very short period because they gave you the best training, I think, of any – I mean, you have to be well-trained <laughs> to sell cigarettes. Um, and then bizarrely, a friend of mine who was working at the same company, moved and he went and worked for Bacardi um, in central London. And it was like, well, just a second, I now can work for a spirits brand and I can be based in central London. And um, as opposed to working for a tobacco company and working about an hour outside, uh, outside London. So my social life improved um, and th- the industry that, that I was in improved. And it, it was, a, you know, again, a fascinating time because was, I was a European marketing manager. So I was traveling around Europe, using my languages, speaking to people in different countries um, and, and trying to get them to drink more Bacardi rum um, when Bacardi was still a sing, single brand company. So um, we're talking quite a long time ago, which probably ages me quite considerably. But um, it, was, you know, it, was, it was a great, great business. And then Bacardi bought Martini and Rossi. And when they bought them, they wanted me to move to either Amsterdam or Bermuda or somewhere strange. And I was like, I don't know if I want to go to Amsterdam. And Bermuda looked quite attractive. But then I, re- I realized that you never left. So I couldn't really go there in my late 20s. And um, such as the industry was in those days, it was such a sort of you know gentleman's in- industry that, you know, Bacardi almost arranged for me to get an interview at United Distillers, who took one look at me and sent me straight to Poland. literally i think my boss said to me i think he said something along the lines of um charles you were in the army i said yes he said oh so you'd be happy to go to poland then i was like okay i didn't know that that was the precise link between those two things but it was there that i got the chance to be involved in my first startup company so it was myself my boss and uh a a office manager secretary who spoke english and polish and it was the three of us and this girl came with me everywhere to talk so that I can converse and talk to the locals and set up, you know, businesses. And um, yeah, we had the most extraordinary kind of three, four years living in Poland. Um, r- again, right at the beginning, right when the kind of first people were going into the market. So it was very entrepreneurial. And it was very much a work hard, play hard um, env- environment at that, at that time.
0: Well, I think like even back then, UDF, UDV was such a small company. Mm. Like if we looked at Diageo now, and was like, "Oh my god, Diageo is a, a behemoth." But like back in those days, like it really was a startup. Like like the early 80s, mid 80s, it was still a startup in most markets that it went to. Like it had a good stronghold, obviously, in the UK and the the out, outliers from there. But really, it was still such a small, small market. So you you were in uh, in Poland for a while, uh for four years. UDF, uh sorry, you saying UDF UDV? Um, did you were you there when they Progress. I remember when I started my career, it felt like every other week UDV was changing its name because it started acquiring more things and it sort of it evolved.
1: So, so, <laughs> I think I worked for United Distillers, then I worked for UDV, then I worked for Guinness UDV, and then I worked for Diageo. Um, so it was sort of every, every
0: six months they sent you a new business card. You said, okay, fine, <laughs> whatever. You know. um, I remember having like multiple business cards from the same rep all yeah. the different titles exactly
1: exactly that was well that's what life was like and we um and i, I spent three years there but i did uh, you know i remember because it polish winters were hard um very hard like there was you know months and months of sub-zero temperatures and the supermarkets were pretty challenging and so i was kind of pleading for a sunshine posting Um uh, so whatever you do to me next send me somewhere where there's sunshine and um I was extraordinarily fortunate because they sent me to Australia um, and they said, look, listen, you're a good, you know, wild East frontiersman, but we need you to get a bit more dis- disciplined. So they sent me to go and look after uh, Dan Murphy's and Woolworth's in Australia, believe it or not. And that was, my, that was my gig when I first arrived in Australia. And then I went to Perth, Western Australia and ran their business there. And then I got involved in in some really exciting stuff where we were evolving new RTDs and new configurations for RTDs. But most importantly, we actually started doing, and you'll appreciate this as an Australian, we started doing Bundaberg Rum and Cola on oh, tap yeah. in oh, Queensland. I
0: remember, I remember those days. I, like, I- I try and explain to people like Johnny Walker and Ginger on tap and you'd you'd be able to buy drugs of it. You'd buy drugs and you sit there with your mates and you'd you'd buy drugs. And I try to explain the RTD culture because in, in, I don't think North America since COVID uh, you've started seeing canned cocktails and stuff like that. But RTD culture in Australia is, it's unto itself.
1: It's 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 unbelievable. Yeah. And there's brands that do RTD in Australia that don't do them anywhere else in the world. You know, many of them only do them in Australia. So yeah. it was a it was a fascinating uh, time. But actually, trying to put trying to put Bundaberg Rum and cola into a keg to sell it into the on-trade, and in Australia they have that again. It's, I think it's very uniquely Australian. But they ice the beer taps. Mm-hmm. All the beer taps are just caked in about an inch of ice. And of course, that meant that the 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 refreshment that you get from an Australian beer you know, is, is second to none because it's literally coming out at two, three degrees centigrade. Whereas a beer in most other markets is coming out at six, seven degrees. And the coldest you can get a spirit and mixer to two in a glass is, is probably nine, 10 degrees. So you increase the refreshment cues by these kind of iced taps delivering this icy cold Bundy and Cola. And it just slipped down the throat and you didn't actually know what the hell you were drinking.
0: It was yeah the the glycol systems that we have in Australia. So I've never seen them anywhere else in the world. No, anywhere else at all. So no. you, did you were you married at this time? Like were you dragging your poor wife all over the world? No, I stayed. I stayed single until I was forty,
1: believe it or not. And and it was really the next chapter in the life where I where I where I was. I left my and I, I left uh, Diageo, um, and then I messed around in a wine business for a little while. Um, which sadly came to an end at the same time as 9-11 because we were looking to export into the U.S. And then I heard on the grapevine, on the industry grapevine, that Mert Hennessy was going to establish a business in Australia. And I thought, oh, this, this sounds like FUD. And I, I, I stalked the guy who was, the, who was going to be the managing director, CEO of, of Mo Hennessy Australia. I stalked him, literally. Um, He was coming down from Singapore. I'd learned all about him. And he was this hot shot Moa Hennessy guy, a guy called Rob Remnant. And I was kind of looking, how the hell do I get in touch with this guy? And I'd send him letters and do this and do this. And eventually, um, I think persistence paid off and I got to meet him. And we hit it off on day one and just, you know, he brought me in uh, to set up the team. So I started recruiting people, you know, Coast to coast, um, bringing on board the entire sales organization, establishing all the relationships with, you know, the big retailers and and uh, getting a fantastic team in place. And what's amazing about that team is that today around the world, you know, there are still people from that team in very now in very senior positions at Moa Hennessy or who've left Moa Hennessey like myself, and are in senior positions in other companies. Um, and it's, you know, it's a source of huge pride when you you say, my God, I recruited, you know, um, Andrew McLaren. Andrew McLaren now runs Moa Hennessy Australia. And you know, that's just fantastic that people have built a career off off that startup. Um, and Australia is just a, an, an amazing country to do that in because everybody, you know, there's always the, tall poppy syndrome and this, that, and the other. But everybody was like, wow, you've taken control. You've, and they love you for the fact you've taken control and you get on and you do stuff and um, just a phenomenal time to be there as well. Just a great,
0: great time. That would have been around about the time I started, like I was getting really into my cocktails, 2001, 2002 was like yeah. when I really started building in Australia at that time. This is all pre-social media. I always remind people pre-social media. Like, this stuff wasn't easy to do. Like, you had to buy books, and there was no YouTube. There wasn't uh, a lot of web uh, information about it, all this sort of stuff. I thought it was uh, kind of insane and crazy. Yeah. I mean,
1: stalking somebody now is very easy through LinkedIn and social media, whereas stalking somebody in those days to try and get a job was really difficult. (laughs) It was hard work. You actually (laughs) – (laughs) had <laughs> to try and find out a name and an address and this and that and the other. You couldn't just ping them on you know on the off chart. So it was quite uh
0: go to their LinkedIn profile and chase. Correct.
1: Them. <laughs> Send them a message out of hope, you know. So it was it was a real a real labour of love. But yes, that was when I met um that was where I met my wife. So she was she was part of the Hennessy Australia startup team, um, you know, hugely talented young lady, and and um, you know we we started seeing each other. Then I had to go and chat to the boss and say, look, listen, you need to be aware of that. And uh, so things got moved around, and six probably what probably th- no three or four months later, we we got married and, and carried on working together and. Bizarrely, you know, she 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 still works for for Moet Hennessy in a in a capacity here in the US to, to oh, wow. today. wow! So yeah, so having worked for them in Australia, then in Europe, and now here in the US.
0: So when did you take over Belvedere? Because I we really either want to get into uh, it's you were just you were at Belvedere before you went over to uh, Fever Tree, correct? Yeah, correct. And so you did some amazing things with Belvedere. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> um, i going to bring up CSR, but we're going to – what made you make the move to uh, Belvedere Vodka? So <laughs> the, the the head of Hennessy at the
1: time came to me and looked at me and said, Charles, I'd like you to go and run a vodka business. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> <I> was just, <laughs> I said, do I have to? I, I joined a champagne company. Yes, he said. So off I went. And um, that was it. I mean, it was like, look, Charles, we need somebody to come and – Approach this with a different mindset and, you know, um, develop and build a brand that was essentially a U.S. only business and make it into a global business. And I think that's, you know, if if, if you say what was your legacy at Belvedere of, of all the things it was when I took over the brand, it was whatever it was, you know, almost all sold in the U.S. All the profit was coming from the U.S., um, whereas when I left, the business was a global brand and a global business um, with a balanced, you know, sales and profit pool and, um, you know, and we were doing some pretty big things on a global stage. So it was a it was a great business to be involved in.
0: So well, you, well, how long were you with Belvedere?
1: Nine years. So I started there wow. in late 2008 and left in 2017.
0: Wow, and so what? You, like I've got the list in front of me. So you, uh, you brought to the US, the US. I I find it crazy because I think people from the outside looking in see Belvedere and Diageo these massive companies, and you have really just treated them like a brand new startup, as if you if they were your own babies, or your own companies.
1: Yeah, I think that. But that's the great thing about the Mo Hennessy system, if you like, where you have a, a maison, a house, you know. Um, and as the president of the Maison, you you run the business globally, so you run it as your own business. And you know very quickly, you know I you know determined that you know we needed to move the headquarters because the headquarters was in London. And I go, why on earth is the headquarters in London for this business? So. We moved it from London to New York, um, and I always used to say I always describe myself as a, you know as a Scotsman working for a French company running a Polish vodka, married to an Australian and living in New York, which pretty much sums up my life um, but I love the way that MH M- 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 Hennessy gives you this freedom as the president of the Maison to make these decisions to make you know big decisions about you know where the brands they're going, to, going to be headquartered. How you're going to approach it? And I said, look, whatever happens, I have to get the brand, I have to succeed in the US, and I have to take the brand global. Well, my knowledge and experience was all global at that point, unless in the US. So come closer to your biggest market, your biggest consumer base, and obviously where there's the most sort of global influence on bartenders and and um, all all the rest of it. So that was why we kind of moved it here, and then that gave us the platform. You know, again, I
0: was a, uh, I was running a. time. So while you were at Belvedere, uh, let's have a look here. You did the James Bond film, obviously Spectre, which is a yeah. huge, a huge, huge thing. How did you pull that off? Was it another one of those like business card from someone to connect someone to connect someone else?
1: I got to work with you know an extraordinarily talented team, um, and a lady called Nicola Stevenson introduced me to the Bond team, um, and then we ended up going to meet with Barbara Bro- Broccoli, who, who you know uh, owns the franchise, <laughs> and um, we went and met with them at, at the at their offices in in London, and I spent probably an hour getting grilled by. By Barbara on, um, you know where Belvedere was from, what it was about, why they, why we should be working. No money, no, no talk about money or anything like that. It was all about is this brand the right fit for my brand as as James Bond? And it was most one of the one of the most terrifying meetings of my life. Um, but somehow within that meeting, there was amazing chemistry. Very clearly from from the you know the roots of of what Belvedere was. Uh, to the roots of James Bond. And I always say, you know, James Bond is a man, a man of style and substance, and Belvedere was a vodka of style and substance. Um, the style being the beautiful bottle and the extraordinary innovation that we were able to do, and the substance being the Polish roots and the, you know, the rye vodka and the zero additives and the fact that, you know, Poland is the birthplace of vodka, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I always used to be proud, pr- proudly tell any, uh, any, any Pole that I met that I was, I was, uh, heading up poland's leading luxury export nobody was ever able to to disprove that so i kept on saying it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so that was a lot of yeah that was a lot of fun and then you know the amazing thing about a business like my honesty is the ability to execute that in you know 50 50 <laughs> countries around the world you know bang just like that and so we got involved. We did special limited edition bottles, and we did, you know, extraordinary events and activations. Um, we did a, a bit of TV advertising featuring a bod girl, the first Mexican bod girl, um, and just yeah, just, it was a it was a phenomenal experience and an amazing amazing opportunity to see inside, you know, a brand that is so loved mm-hmm. by its adorers. And really, get- they produce a film, what, once every three, four years, yes. and it sustains this extraordinary love, quite a most amazing, amazingly iconic brand.
0: Did you get a chance to drive a DB1?
1: I got a chance to <laughs> sit in one. <laughs> Sadly, didn't get to, I, I was invited to go out and drive one, and I didn't get, I just, I, I the lady at Aston Martin said, you must come and have a test drive. I must go I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just never quite – the diary's never quite worked out.
0: <laughs> so, so while you were at Hannah's, uh, Belvedere, um, you started the uh, the the RED, the, the initiative yeah. of private sectors to fight AIDS. Now, CSR talked about a lot now, and I think it's been talked uh, – I think in the spirit industry, especially with non-drinking, like non-drinking seed lip and, and the non-al- non non Alcoholic distillates and stuff like that. CSR has become a big thing, especially like Siedlip being into being brought into Biagio's incubator and that sort of thing. So it's obviously being taken seriously. But what what sort of pushed you? Because you're obviously a dynamic leader with uh, this sort of entrepreneurial spirit. What was this sort of this sort of movement towards CSR as it sort of got kicked off? It seems like everything you've always picked up when it comes to new companies and new products and stuff is always at the very beginning. Of like when stuff should happen. So, what was the push for the like this corporate social responsibility movement with uh, Belvedere Red?
1: I think it was. It was there was there was a couple of drivers behind it. One was, um, one was I was a bit tired of being asked for free vodka, you know. And so, what I found was that we were donating, you know so much vodka to parties and events and supporting this charity and this charity and this charity and this charity. And what we worked out was we were very charitable, but we actually stood for nothing because all we were doing was supporting other people's parties. So it was actually a say, well, listen, let's stop doing that. We need to stop that. And what we need to do is actually make a stand ourselves. And then we said, right, what do we want to do? How do we want to, you know put ourselves forward in that space. And it was like, well, what, how can we make a difference on a global basis? Because again, you're running a global brand. You're not running the local brand. You're running the global brand. So how do we make a difference on a global, on a global basis? And obviously the issue of, you know, HIV and particularly HIV in Africa. And people always say, if you can fix it there, you, you'll, you, you know, you'll fix it globally. And then we looked at Red. And when you look at Red, you know, their brand fit with ours was great because it was about creativity. It was about, you know, being ingenious. It was a different fundraising model, you know, totally different fund- fundraising model. And when, you know, Red launched with, you know, the Apple, you know, um, iPod, the original iPod red, you know, now you can get every single new iPhone comes out in a red one. And they just had a really cool stable of of dynamic energizing. You know, Nike did the red shoelaces at one stage. Very simple initiative, just red shoelaces. And, you know, I've still got in, in all my trainers, I've got red shoelaces because I just got a whole load of them at the time because it's a simple gesture. You, you just change one little behavior. You buy the red one versus this and the company don't, donates money. It's a brilliant brilliant initiative and you know obviously there was there was various conversations that had to take place between us and the red team because you know hiv and 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 alcohol should you be doing it shouldn't you be doing it and you know fundamentally we all came down to the same conclusion which is where real people have the conversation about things that matter to them in the world, it normally happens over a drink. You know, you discuss politics, you discuss sport, you discuss fashion, you discuss, you know, world affairs, world events, climate change, whatever you're discussing, but you generally discuss it around the table over a drink or two. And um, we thought we're no better place to put a bottle of Belvedere vodka into the middle of that discussion point. The other thing it allowed us to do was it really allowed us to engage with celebrities in a totally different way because suddenly what we could do is we could go and talk to a Lady Gaga or we could go and talk to, you know, a John Legend or um, an Usher, and we could ask them to come and help us support what we were doing and who we stood for as a brand as opposed to here's a big check to be an ambassador for my vodka. Mm -hmm. Here's what we believe in. Do you believe in the same thing, and will you help us? And it was amazing that you know all those people I mentioned did so willingly and really, really kind of embraced and engaged you know with what we were doing, and did you know amazing events for us. And whether that was a private event, you know, in in um, at Annabelle's in London with Lady Gaga releasing one of her new albums, which we. You know, featured around Red, whether it was Usher doing something on the eve of the Grammys in a- a- L.A. It really gave us access to be able to, again, to use their mouthpiece to talk about the good that we were doing and not just having them as, here's another celebrity vodka ambassador, which, again, was something that we wanted to do. Um, and I'm glad you said we thought we were ahead of our time. I think we were a bit ahead of our time maybe with that one but what i'm what you know the thing that when, when i left belvedere that, that you know people say what what were you most proud of you know one of the things that that gave me the greatest source of pride was the fact that you know there were 42,000 hiv um positive mothers who gave birth to healthy babies thanks to the drugs that belvedere was able to provide that's pretty cool to think that 42,000 kids in the world who were born thanks to the work that we 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 did and that um, yeah, that's something
0: I'm really proud of. So now we can finally actually talk about what we actually met. We, what the interview was all about was Fever Tree. Yeah. Again, like again, like obviously, people who are listening are going to see this sort of repetitive pattern of this challenge and this like. Okay, I'm going to take on another startup and 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 especially with the big move, like Spirits themselves will always sort of sell themselves. Straight up, and as you said in the very beginning about the the jaw drop and that that sort of blank stare when they really start clicking the the wheels start clicking in the back of their heads, like yeah, you're you're drinking Belvedere with like off the gun tonic or off the gun soda. Like, what? Why? Why are you doing this? Like, why are you paying twelve dollars an ounce for off the gun soda? Um, so how did how did that sort of come about? Were you looking for a new challenge because it it, it seems like you're always rising, and then okay, what's next?
1: um well firstly you know we'd done quite a bit of work with fever tree during during my tenure at belvedere and so i you know and in fact you know at one stage fairly early on i I said right well if fever tree is in the same market whenever we do an event as belvedere we must always do it with fever tree so that our drinks taste good no i don't want our drinks tasting bad imagine being a company and having bad tasting drinks at your party that's sort of that's a bit weird it's like going to a you know going to a michelin-starred restaurant and eating mcdonald's it just shouldn't happen you know what i mean (laughs) so the the chef serves you a whole load of big macs like not really what i came here for um so so we'd done a bit of work with them and 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 they were talking you know they obviously came to me and i i got to meet and i think this was really important because the chemistry was was critical but i got to meet tim warlow and charles rolls who started the business and we just got on extremely well you know on a personal level um we believed in the same things we're passionate about the same things um we care about the same things and so you know when, when they came to me and said look charles we'd love you to come and join our team um we're thinking about setting up a company in america would you be interested just yes you know yes um why because i believe in the opportunity and i believe in the brand you know the opportunity is huge here the brand is you know phenomenal um the culture is really important to me. I think, you know, this is the big differentiator people. A lot of people talk about it. Um, but I really, I really believe that kind of the environment and the culture and, and Tim and Charles both wanted, you know, somebody who, could, who would come in and, and, and not be constrained by the big corporate, actually be free of that and go off and do stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think, the other bit was it, it, it's just, it, it's just been an, it's just an exciting opportunity, an ex- exciting business. And when you believe in something, um, it means that every, every day at work isn't a, you know, it isn't a grind or anything like that. Every, every day at work is like, right, I, how, how do I get more people to believe in the same thing? And, and whether that's, you know, the retailers, the bartenders, the media, uh, or or obviously the consumer, um, that's the excitement here,
0: you know? And, and I think it's it sort of, it, it, as you said, that culture, that click, that when you first met them, like they, they basically started a company that most people would be like, well, but we've got tons of pop on the market. There's tons of soda on the market. Why why would you want to make a premium mixer right now? Like cause it was ahead of its time. Now premium mixers are every, everywhere. Premium mixers are mm-hmm. absolutely everywhere. So with Fevertree, um, Building on that, COVID hits... And I've I've looked some stats up and I got some stats from uh, online about how much Fever Tree blew up. And I've seen this just in my market in the macro of like, everybody's making sourdough, everybody's pickling, everybody's making jam or making... And then, of of course, cocktails. And I know that here in Victoria, we had a big Campari shortage at the very start of COVID because everybody was making Negronis at home. Mm -hmm. Um, Were you expecting... Obviously, we're eight months into a, a pandemic. Were you expecting the response to Fever Tree, like you've had massive Google searches, all were you expecting the consumer behaviour to change so drastically, so dramatically, so quickly?
1: Um Absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think no, I think I think now no absolutely not, because did we project this? No. Um, but now on reflection, does it surprise me? Absolutely not. And now you can't project it because if you say, hey, right, I'm going to wipe out, you know, a third of my business you know, in North America, U.S. and Canada, about a third of our business was going through bars, restaurants, hotels, all those things. So you say, right, you're going to lose a third of your business and you're still going to grow. Uh, that's pretty tough. So like everybody, I think we kind of said, don't, you know, don't think this is going to be a great time for us. But then, what happened was we saw people transferring a lot of their on-trade behaviours to the at-home market, and to your point around home baking, you know, uh, home arts and crafts, and all the rest of it. This formed a key part of that, and you know, I'm sure all of us have needed a drink once or twice during the last uh, number of months. And I think the penny dropped as well with people going into their local grocery store or liquor store or wherever they're buying, you know, their their mixers from and going, well, you know what, I'll try something new. And I think this is where Fevertree, again, has been brilliant with innovation. You know, we're finding that our elderflower tonic water, our Mediterranean tonic water, our aromatic tonic water, those are the ones that are growing, you know, faster almost than the whole portfolio. And wow. It's because people are experimenting. They're going, well, I want to try and make myself a cocktail at home, but I don't have the confidence to pour the right amount of Saint-Germain in or to do a, a you know, lemon thyme uh, syrup or something like that for myself. So I'll just use the fever tree that's already got lemon thyme in it or it's already got some Angostura in it or it's already got some elderflower in it. And they suddenly go, wow, that transforms that cocktail for me. And then when you look at what's happened in the spirits market, because clearly we're tied to the, you know, we're tied pretty pretty much to, to, to how that evolves. You've seen premium spirits have continued to grow. In fact, in many cases, they've accelerated their growth during lockdown, particularly tequilas and whiskey and, and gin's done very well during lockdown as well. And so, and how are people drinking those? Well, people are still looking for simple, long mixed drinks. You know, when you're making a drink at home, you're wanting something that's, simple i I can make it myself because my choice is beer wine or or spirit and mixer Mm -hmm. and so it's got to be simple it can't have four or five ingredients and you know i'm i was as guilty as everybody working for a spirits company you know suggesting right now all you've got to do is a six step seven ingredient cocktail like you know nobody's ever going to make it. Whereas you make a simple long-mix drink, you're getting something that's refreshing because it's long, you're getting something simple, and yet suddenly because you're using a flavoured tonic water or a flavoured gin, ginger ale, you're getting two or three extra ingredients coming into it. So Actually, you are making a cocktail. Um, and I, I think that has been... You know, that's been absolutely at the core of why we've seen the growth that we've seen during during this period. And, you know, both. I mean, Canada, you know, equally as strong. I mean, the business in Canada is doing amazingly well for exactly the same reasons. Uh, the business in the U.S., you know, you've quoted some of the numbers, but, you know, our reported growth in the first half of the year was plus 39 you know, percent. Very strong growth, you know. So exciting times ahead.
0: Yeah, so my my favorite drink at work right now, I've got it on the menu, um, is just Averna Amaro Mm -hmm. and lemon tonic. Yeah, delicious Averna Limoni. So that pushes it like when when the sort of that first conversation you had when COVID hit, because as you can see, like as we've been talking about, like retail and the -hmm. consumer that's blown up, but then you've got this very. Hard-hit hospitality industry, and we've had lots of bar closures and a lot of lockdowns and open up again, lockdowns. And I know I talk to a lot of um, different brands and and different brand heads just about how you sort of approach it, because you can either, you can really make it, I'm going to say, I'm going to, you can make it tasteless. If you do certain things when the industry is all shut down, like a lot of people have talked about that with award ceremonies and stuff like that. Like why are we giving awards out to bars that may be closed in 2021? Um, how did you sort of approach that? Because obviously consumers blew up, everybody's making drinks at home, everybody's loving them, loving life. How did you approach the, the, the bartender side of things?
1: We the first thing we did was we said we want them um, we want to give them meaningful things to do and f- from our perspective so in fact if you go on to our instagram or look at any of our little you know vignette type videos we use bartenders um, to make drinks and show people how to make a great tasting drink at home and we actually got bartenders you know appear videos and obviously paid them to do so we actually got them doing their metier. What was amazing was that, you know, they were doing these things on their iPhones in their homes with their own. And you go, my God, you've got all that stuff at home. I feel a bit embarrassed. I don't have any of that stuff. But what you really got an insight into was not only how to make a great tasting drink, but also just how passionate these people are in the fact that their home bar is probably as sophisticated as their, as their bar uh, at work, as it were. Um, so that was really important to us was to sort of find ways to engage you know engage the community and to do things um with them um you know secondly as as bars have been opening up and down i said we've you know we've certainly in new york which you can imagine as you know, um was well very very hard hit. but then as new york started to reopen and the whole summer terrace and sort of patio thing and has has evolved and um, the streets of New York look, as, I think, as close to Paris as they ever will at the moment with the amount of sort of outdoor dining. But, you know, we've been doing umbrellas and, you know, what can we help you with? How can we help you? We've built these pop-up bars. Again, marketing team had done an amazing job to sort of build these little pop-up bars that people can wheel outside their bar to serve people out on the street and to help them. Um and then, obviously, we've been finding ways to support, you know, local bartender, um, you know, community and effort, you know, um, uh, you know, with some financial financial support. But I think as 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 much as financial support is is clearly critical, I think I think engaging people and talking to them and. And giving them things to do has been as, probably as a, as important, and um, those cement relationships. I hope you know in the medium and long longer term because we were absolutely there for people, but absolutely also, um, you know, we've we've been giving them, giving them, you know, things to do, which I think is is so critical.
0: So what's the what's the plan for the next six months? I know that obviously, uh, uh, who was I talking to the other day? Talking to another brand the other day, and I was like, "So, how, how has that been? Like, because most marketing, as you know, most marketing teams, and and that sort of thing, I thinking two years ahead, and they're sort of back backcasting from that. And right now, no one can really think what's going to be like in two years. What's the What's the immediate plan for the next six months?
1: I think, God love. I think we're you know, we're, undoubtedly our our life is going to be somewhat dictated by what happens with the virus and what happens with opening or you know openings and closing i think what 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 you can predict for the next 6 months and particularly for the winter is going to be you know it's going to be lumpy um and and i think therefore you know trying to be as consistent as we possibly can be um is is really important during a kind of lumpy period with you know bars opening closing opening closing think the other thing that we did during lockdown that we're going to continue to do which is you know keep talking to people keep talking to people the number of bits of business that we've been able to pick up because our sales team never stopped calling on maybe not physically calling on but contacting the bars Mm -hmm. contacting the hotels contacting so i think staying close staying in touch finding innovative solutions like the to-go kits that was another great thing you know These to go kits, and we create little pack, you know, carrier bags, so you could buy half a bottle of this and two or three mixers, and you know, get that as a to go thing or to go cocktail ideas. Um, You know, people use our 500ml bottles, unscrew the top, take out a bit of ginger beer, stick a bit of spirit and a couple of other things in, screw it back up. Here you go, here's your to go cocktail. So more and more of those kind of things, I think, absolutely staying at the forefront of those and scaling those wherever we can. That's absolutely critical. I think, you know. No doubt we're all going to be, sadly, you know, probably addicted to our screens even more during the next period. So how do we find ways to continue to engage, you know, bartenders and uh, engage the trade, engage consumers um, through, you know, that very simple thing of how to, how to make a great tasting drink at home. Um, and, you know, I think, I think most importantly is, is stay focused on the opportunity in the future, and for us, you know, we've got a great, um, you know, we've got a great future, and and and, you know, this business was was always going to have a you know rapid acceleration at some at, at some stage because, as more and more people get that simple idea into their head of if three quarters of your drink is the mixer, the more the you know the more it's going to take off, and I think it's really exciting that. People are doing it at home, so they're actually going to be walking into their local bars, going, "Oh yeah, I know fever tree. I've been having it at home for the last <laughs> six, six months, and all the rest of it," which is only going to help the bartender because they're going to go, "Great, well, I've got fever tree, and I love fever tree." So I think it's, uh, it, you know, um, it's it's you know, there's a there's a great opportunity for us
0: here. So I don't want to take up any much more mm-hmm. of your time, but. Uh you've done obviously everybody's who's listening has heard such an amazing story 30 years in the industry one last question uh what what do you hope your legacy is going to be like obviously you're not slowing down (laughs) (laughs) anytime so what do you feel is going to be your legacy as uh as charles gibb
1: um well i don't i mean uh, well as charles gibb that's a very different thing no i think uh, look in this role i hope uh, you know, I think our, our, the legacy we we want to create as the sort of founding members of Fever Tree North America is to change, is is genuinely to say we change the way people drink um, their spirits in North America. That would be a pretty cool le- legacy for all of us as a as a family, and we talk about the Fever Tree North American family. Um, but we do, I mean, that's that's what we want to do. We want to we want to genuinely have a legacy of having changed the way people consume um, in in this market, these two countries. Um, and, and, and that would be a very cool thing to have done.
0: Well, I want to thank you for your time, Charles. It was amazing chatting to you. What uh, It was just great. It was a great conversation, just about everything. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. sure Absolutely. Thanks a lot. I'll chat to you soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, Shifters. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, Make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.